of 2023. I want to take you back to July 24th, 2016. Some of you were here then. Many of you were not. That was the day that I preached my very first sermon at Pocosin Baptist Church. Uh, I was a, a younger man in his early 30s looking for a job, and you were a church looking for a pastor. And a lot has changed around here since then. Uh, our logo changed, our slogan changed, our sign out front changed. Really, we just kind of covered over the sign out front. Some of you remember that. Uh, we used to have pews in the chapel. We used to fit in the chapel. Uh, we used to have a bunch more flags flying around this building. Some of you remember that. We won't talk about that. Much of what changed around here, though, wasn't merely cosmetic changes. Much of what changed around here since July 24th, 2016, were, were massive changes to the life and structure of our church. So, for example, in 2017, uh, we took major, ch major, a major step towards meaningful church membership. We had a, a big harvest day. Some of you were here for that. And you remember that step that we took to, to be clear about who we were as a church. In 2018, we spent much of that year, until you all were sick of it, studying what the Bible says about elders and church leadership. In 2019, we uh, changed our constitution and installed our first group of elders. Uh, also in 2019, we, we began to implement some changes into our weekly liturgy. We, we added a, a whole lot more time of prayer into our worship gatherings. Uh, so many of you are our guests this morning. We're so grateful that you're here. And perhaps that's one of the things that struck you when you first came into this room and sat in one of our services. They, they pray a lot. And some of those guys stand up there and pray for a long time. And that's different for you. Maybe you didn't spend a lot of time doing that. Maybe like me, you grew up in a church where prayer was sort of like the perfunctory thing that you do before a meal. You know, a quick prayer before the sermon, a quick prayer to end the service, and that's it. But when you read the New Testament, it's clear that God's people pray a lot, but a lot of stuff. And so we wanted to, as a church, beginning in 2019, spend more time praying about big things, things that are really important, praying for the nations, praying for missionaries, praying for each other, praying for this church. In 2020, we launched our very first fellowship group ministry. Um, in retrospect, 2020 was probably not the best year to begin a small group ministry, but God was faithful, and we were able to survive that in the middle of COVID. Um, in 2021, we began our sermon series in Matthew. True story. 2021. Uh, in 2022, we joined the Pillar Network and united with a, a group, a global body of like-minded churches. But despite all of those things, beautiful, glorious, good changes that God has brought here, our mission as a church has not changed. When I stood before you on July 24th, 2016, I unfolded for you a vision for Pocosin Baptist Church. I told you this, if the Lord leads you to call me as pastor, this is what we would strive with his spirit and by his grace to do. And then I invited you to turn your, in your Bibles to the very same passage that we're going to look at this morning, Matthew chapter 28 in the Great Commission. So if you're not already there, open up your Bible 
and go to Matthew 28, verse 16. Bless you to whoever that was. Matthew 28, verse 16. We've been out of Matthew's gospel for a few weeks. And so let's just remind ourselves of where we are in the gospel of Matthew. Jesus has died on the cross just as he said. He rose from the dead just as he said. And you would think that's the big climax. That's how the story ends. And it doesn't. It ends not with a resurrected Jesus, and that's the end of the story, but with a resurrected Jesus saying to his people, here's what I want you to do. He appeared to some of his disciples, and now he invites all of them to meet him at a specific mountain. And just before he leaves to ascend to his Father in heaven, he tells them, here's what I expect for you to do while I'm gone. And in our passage this morning, the big idea I hope to communicate to you is the very same big idea that I presented to you in the very first sermon that I preached on this in this building, not in this building, but that one over there. The mission of the church is to make disciples. Same, same big idea, same text. Let's look at it again together, church family. As we sometimes say around here, the mission of the church is to shepherd sinners from lost to leader. With God's help, I want to ask and answer three simple questions from our text. Why must we make disciples? How do we make disciples? And how can we make disciples? Question number one, why must we make disciples? Now, the obvious answer is we make disciples because Jesus commands it. Verse 19, go therefore and make disciples. Why do you do it? Because Jesus told you to. On the one hand, that, that's, that's really all we need. And yet... My argument from our passage this morning is that this is not merely one command that God's people must do, but the great commission that ought to be the central focus of the church. Now, if it's merely one of Jesus' commands, I could have came here on that Sunday in July 2016, and I could have preached a sermon on Matthew 22, verse 21, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. And I could have said, here's our vision as the church. We're going to pay our taxes. I don't think he would have hired me. Just gut feeling. Every word of Jesus matters. Every command of Jesus must be obeyed. But what Jesus is giving us here is more than a mere command. This is the central command for the church. This is the great commission. This is why we're here. Why is making disciples not merely a good thing for the church to do, but the thing that a church must do? Look at the text with me again. Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, his final words to his disciples in the Gospel of Matthew. Everything has been building to this. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I want you to notice 
And in the command part of, of the Great Commission, there are four verbs. Four verbs. First one is go. It's underlined for you. Look how easy that is. Second one, this is actually just one word in the Greek, is make disciples. What's the third one? Oh, that was horrible. What's the third one? Oh, there we go. And the fourth? Teaching. Very good. Okay. Now, how do we know that make disciples is the central command for the church? To answer that question, you got to go back to grammar school for just a second. Uh, and you might remember from your grammar that there are four primary verb moods. Okay? So one is an indicative. An indicative is a statement of fact. So, for example, perhaps you came in this room this morning and you noticed uh, a visitor that's not normally here and you thought to yourself, she's in my seat. That's an indicative. It's a statement of fact. Uh, you might have moved it to a second verb move, mood, which is an in interrogative, a question, and you might have gone up to that person and asked, will you please get out of my seat? A third is a conditional where, where, where the verb is stated with some sort of a condition. So perhaps, and I hope you didn't do this, but if you, you might have gone up to somebody or perhaps you thought about it and said, if you don't get out of my seat, I might get angry. And finally, the final verb mood is an imperative. It's a command. This would be you going up to that dear person and say, get out of my seat. Now, which of those four verb moods is the strongest it's an imperative. Get out of my seat, right? There is one and only one imperative in the Great Commission. You know what it is? Many people look at the text in their English Bibles, and it looks like it's which word? The word go, but it's not. In the original language, only one word is an imperative, and it's that word, make disciples. This is the central mission of the church. This is why we're here. That's the imperative. That's the command. Make disciples. What does it mean to make disciples? In his helpful little blue book, Discipling, Mark Dever says that discipling or making disciples is deliberately doing spiritual good to someone so that he or she will be more like Christ. Or if you want it even simpler, Making disciples is helping people follow Jesus. That's what it means to make disciples. And that, dear brother, sister, friend, is the central mission of the church. Everything that we do, every prayer, every song, every meeting, every sermon, every Bible study, every event, everything that we do as a church should be in one way or another help, helping us do that. That's why we're here. Jesus did not rescue his disciples and found the church so we could form a holy cul-de-sac where we hung out with each other but so that we would be an alley, an avenue through which the gospel would come from us to others so that we would all grow in godliness and closeness to Jesus. That's the mission of the church. Second question we want to ask this morning is how? How do we make disciples? How do we make disciples? One danger in understanding the central imperative in the Great Commission 
is that we can wrongly think that the rest of it doesn't matter. Now, every word of Jesus is important. What we don't want to do is here, make disciples, that's the imperative, therefore the rest of it doesn't matter. No, the imperative helps us to understand the main thrust, but the other words are important too. The fact that the command says, make disciples and, and also go baptize, teach, doesn't mean that make disciples is the only word that matters. I want, I want you to go back to grammar school one more time, and I want to tell you about another type of word called a participle, Okay? Participle. A participle is a, a word formed from a verb used as an adjective. Now, for some of you, that would be like me trying to just explain uh, Einstein's theory of relativity. Like you would have understood that easier than what I just said. Um, a, a participle, a word formed from a verb used as an adjective. Usually, it's a word that in English ends in ing, and it helps you understand the main verb. So let me give you an example. Really simple. I want to put it up on the screen so you can see it. What if I said to you, clean the kitchen, emptying the trash, sweeping the floor, and wiping the counters? Which word's the imperative? What's the main thing you're supposed to do? Clean, clean the kitchen. All the other words ending in ing, those are all participles. They're telling you how to do it. In the same way, all the other verbs in the Great Commission, go, baptizing, teaching, they're telling us how to do the main thing, which is make disciples. So how do we do it? Let's look at each of those words. First of all, we must go. We must go. Again, if you look at that word in your English Bibles, it looks like it's an imperative, but it's not. It's a participle leading many commentators to say a better way to translate that word might be as we are going or as you are going, make disciples. When I grew up, the Baptist church that I grew up in, I remember hearing the Great Commission taught almost every time I ever heard it taught. It was almost always by a missionary. And I, I almost always heard it taught as if the central command of the Great Commission was to go. This was the command for missionaries. This is what missionaries, this is the passage for missionaries. This is for people that need to sell everything and travel across the world and go and make disciples. I didn't hear that make disciples was the imperative until I was in seminary. I spent my whole young adulthood in church thinking that going was the heart of the Great Commission. Once I learned that it was making disciples, it was easy to swing the pendulum to the opposite extreme and say, you don't really have to go at all. All you have to do is, is just make disciples wherever you are. But that's not exactly true either. Uh, one, one problem with swinging the pendulum that far in the other direction is that Jesus says we're to make disciples, notice, of all nations. And you can't really do that if nobody goes. I think the best way to understand the word go here is in the same way we understand the words baptizing and teaching. Going requires intentionality. It requires effort. In other words, you're not going to accidentally make disciples. You're not just going to coast into it. You're not just going to let just see what happens. 
And maybe somehow along the way, I'll make disciples. No, it's going to require strategy and effort and intentionality. For some of you here in this room, that just might mean moving to the other side of the world. Perhaps there are some in this room that what God would have for you to do is to sell all that you have and go. And go to the unreached people groups in some nation somewhere and take the good news to them. Some of us must do that. For many of us, going, the intentionality will be intentionally, strategically building relationships with your neighbors and your coworkers with a specific goal to talk to them about Jesus. Not waiting until they ask me, but strategically, intentionally going to them so that I can win them. For all of us, this first word going requires effort and intentionality. You will never accidentally make disciples. It will require effort. So how are you doing, Christian? What effort are you pouring out to fulfilling this great commission? The second word that tells us how is the word baptize. So letter B, we must baptize. You see it right there in verse 19. Jesus says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, here's what this does not mean. Let's just dunk them as quick as we can, right? Um, If I believed that, I would probably have a baptistry filled up all the time. And I might even have like a tripping hazard near it and just maybe in the middle of the room so that you're walking and just maybe you just, maybe someone trips you and you fall in. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we're done. No, that's not what Jesus means. When Jesus says baptizing them, he, the implication is you're baptizing them into something into a good news that they believe. He says, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So you put your faith in this good news and then get baptized into it. You you believe in the good news that God the Father loved the world so much He sent His Son, Jesus Christ. And the good news that God the Son lived a sinless life and died a sinner's death, then rose from the dead. And the good news that God the Spirit Make sinners come to life so that they can turn from their sins and trust in Jesus. So let me ask you, brother, sister, friend, have you believed in that good news? Have you put your faith in that good news? If you're here this morning and you're interested in Christianity, maybe you're even interested in something like baptism. Listen, before we get you wet, you need to understand the good news of the gospel that you cannot work your way to God, but He did everything to work His way to you. That He sent His Son to die in your place and rise from the dead. Put your faith in that, in Him, not in yourself, in Him, and then pursue the waters of baptism to show the world that your faith is in Jesus. If you're in this room and you're a follower of Jesus, let me ask you, have you been baptized? and to the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Not as a ritual that your parents did for you before you even knew your right hand from your left hand, but you personally, friend, 
as a believer, after putting your faith in this good news, have you submitted to the waters of baptism, not to earn anything from God, but to show that your faith is in Him? Have you done that? If you haven't, I'd love to talk to you after the service about how you can do that. But listen, this is the very first step of obedience for a Christian. You begin the Christian life in baptism. Jesus mentions baptism here because it's the first step of discipleship. If you're not a Christian, you need to repent and believe the gospel. If you are a Christian, you need to follow Jesus in baptism. But once you've been baptized, the work is not done, is it? As we often say again at PBC, our goal is not to see people merely go from lost to saved, but from lost to leader. Notice the third word that Jesus uses, the third participle in the Great Commission. He says, we must teach. Verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Discipleship, I want you to notice carefully, it's not merely teaching one another to know all of Jesus' commands. That would be hard enough. He says, teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. I want you to let that sink in, brother, sister, friend. This is a call to help one another obey all of Jesus' word. Now, let me ask you a question, Christian. Have you reached that yet? Are you at the point where you can look at your life and you can say, yep, I'm observing all that Jesus has commanded? If you say yes, I'd love to talk to you after the service. Because Jesus repeatedly in his teaching ministry shows us that this is more than your outward actions. It's your heart. Even if you look at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart, Jesus says. You have not yet learned how to obey and observe all of this. So what do you need? You need discipleship. A church that only cares about people going from lost to saved is like a mom that only cares about her babies until she gives birth. She loves being pregnant. She loves the, the process of giving birth. But as soon as that child enters the world, she crosses that baby off her list and she's ready for the next one. You, you, you say, that's weird. It is weird. And it should be just as weird for any church to say, all I care about is you walking an aisle and getting saved. I don't care about helping you grow. Jesus says, baptizing and teaching. Now, let me ask to the Christians in this room. How are you doing? Are you ready and willing to help other people follow Jesus? There's a pastor named Vody Bakum. I was talking about this issue a few years ago, and he gave this illustration. He said, imagine a bricklayer who's been laying bricks for 30, 40 years, and a young man hears about this bricklayer, and he says, I want to be a bricklayer. He's never done it before. So he finds that master bricklayer. He's doing it for 30, 40 years. And he says, hey, you've been doing this for 30, 40 years. Will you show me the ropes? Will you teach me how to lay bricks? 
Now, now we hear that, and all of us would say, absolutely, that guy, he's a pro. He should be able to teach this young man how to lay bricks. But what if that man who's been laying bricks for 30, 40 years, what if he responds like this? I ain't no master bricklayer. I, no, I don't know nothing about laying no bricks. Oh, I can't help you. Some of us have been walking with Jesus for 10 20, 30, 40 years. And if a young woman or a young man came up to you and said, will you help me follow Jesus? You would respond in the same way. Oh, I'm not a master. I I ain't no pastor. Oh, I can't help anybody follow Jesus. I can't do that. Uh, I haven't been helped enough myself. And then Vody Bauckham says this, The church is the only place in America where we accept something so ludicrous, where a man can say, I've been walking with God 30, 40 years and proudly declare, I know nothing. I'm ignorant. I'm a babe in Christ, a 40-year-old baby, and I'm not ashamed of it. Nowhere else is that acceptable, only in the church. Brother, sister, I do not say that to make you feel guilty. But I wonder, Christian, if there's some of you in this room that are guilty. Maybe you're guilty of mediocrity. You have so little to share with somebody else because you've received so little yourself. You've invested so little time in Bible reading and prayer and spiritual disciplines that you don't have anything to overflow with anybody else. Maybe some of you in this room are guilty of apathy. The church for you is something that you make time for when all the stars align, when the schedule fits just perfectly and everything works out just perfectly and you feel just great. And for you, apathy is what you need to confess. The body is not, the body of God's people is not something that you treasure and sacrifice for. Maybe you're in this room and you're guilty of fear. You're so terrified of saying the wrong thing that you say nothing. Maybe some of you in this room are guilty of laziness. Helping someone follow Jesus is going to take work and you don't want to give up any of your downtime. I wonder if there's some in this room that are guilty of greed. You want everybody to pour into you, and you don't want to pour into anybody else. Or maybe there's some in this room that are guilty of selfishness. Helping somebody follow Jesus isn't really even on your radar because all you're thinking about is you. Christian, listen to me, hear me. If you've been following Jesus for 5, 10, 15, 20 or more years, and you're not at the point where you can help someone else follow Jesus, hear me clearly, you need to repent. You need to repent. But hear the good news. No matter how many steps you have wandered from Christ, it is always only one step back. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I wonder if there's any Christians in this room that feel just a little bit terrified right now. Hopefully I've convinced you that this is the central mission of the church. 
Hopefully I've convinced you that this is something that you personally should be doing, but you just don't believe that you can do it. Which leads to the final question we want to ask and answer this morning. How can we make disciples? How can we make disciples? I want you to look at verse 17. After the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, the text says, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. There they are on a mountain with the resurrected Jesus, and some doubted. What does that mean? Some people have taught that there were some people that didn't really believe that Jesus rose from the dead. That's not what it's saying at all, actually. A Bible scholar named Daniel Doriani says this, that the Greek term used here is not the ordinary term for doubt. It does not mean they were unsure whether they believed or not. Rather, they believed but hesitated. I wonder if that describes anyone in this room right now. Oh, you believe that he rose from the dead. You believe the gospel is true, but there is a lot of turmoil and hesitation in your soul right now. You look at this great commission, you look at what we've been called to, and you say, I just don't know that I can do it. Aren't you glad that even the 11 who saw him face to face hesitated too? Aren't you glad that you're not alone in this? In the rest of the verse, Jesus, in his words, he gives us three reasons why we really can make disciples with his help. First, we really can make disciples because we work alongside Jesus' people. We work alongside Jesus' people. The Great Commission is not given to the individual Christian. It's given to the church. If the English translation translated really faithfully to the original Greek here, this entire passage would say y'all instead of you. Okay, so y'all go therefore and y'all make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is not a command that rises or falls on the individual Christian, but on the local church. And that is glorious good news. Because if you are faithfully united to a local church, not something I make time for when I have time, not an event I attend sometimes, I belong to it. It's my church. I'm connected to it. If you're faithfully belonging to a local church, you are not doing this alone. How does that work? Well, it works when each of us uses our gifts to work together to make disciples. Just think practically, really practically, how that happened in this building even this morning. Safety team members unlock the doors and keep an eye on the place so we can focus on God's word with fewer distractions, hopefully. Greeters welcome people and give you a bulletin so you can follow along with a sermon, hopefully, maybe take some notes. Our PVC Kids volunteers help parents check in their kids so you can quickly join us in the service. Nursery workers caring for little babies so our parents can listen with fewer distractions. 
Our hospitality workers make coffee. And back in the back lobby right there, you can have some coffee and maybe have a better chance of staying awake through the sermon. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. <clears throat> a, a, a slew of volunteers every single Sunday help us by leading us in prayer and reading God's Word and leading us in song so that our hearts are ready to hear God speak to us. Our AV team, they help us, don't they? They help us make sure we, we know what words to sing. They help us so we can hear what's being said. We don't think about them until they mess up, but they're there helping us every week. The staff, your staff here at PBC does a lot of work behind the scenes every single week to make sure all these parts flow together just the way they're supposed to. And members, you guys faithfully give week in and week out so that we have money to do all the other stuff. If you have any part in any of those things this morning, you are helping us fulfill the Great Commission. You are helping us. Because what is this service doing? Hopefully, in, in some of our lives, it's helping us to follow Jesus, isn't it? You hear God's word, it corrects you, it encourages you, it strengthens you, he speaks to you, and all the little things that we do as a body to help this happen, you're involved in it. So yeah, there might be ways, Christian, where you say, I I've got to do this or that, or change this or that, or grow here or there. That's good. You should do that. But don't overlook the way you're already faithfully helping us do this. Because it doesn't rise or fall on you. It's us together. And that's good news. Second reason why we really can make disciples is because we can trust in Jesus' power. The Great Commission is bracketed by two promises from Jesus one at the beginning in verse 18, and another at the end in verse 20. Look at the first promise in verse 18. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Listen, you and I, Christian, we have a job to do, but we do not do it in our own strength. We work with the strength that Jesus supplies. And that's incredibly good news because Jesus has all authority. Why does Jesus say all authority has been given to me? Uh, Jesus is not saying that he didn't used to have authority. He's the eternal son of God. He's always had all authority. And yet there is a sense in which Jesus receives an even greater authority after his resurrection because now the absolute authority of the eternal son of God rests in the hands of the son of man. Jesus Christ, the resurrected Son of Man, has all authority. And we, we make disciples by relying on His strength. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Colossians chapter 1. He says, Him we proclaim, talking about Jesus, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Look at the text. Christian, if you're going to be faithful to make disciples, it's going to take effort. See what Paul says? For this I toil. It's going to take effort. And yet, if you're faithful, you'll find that you're toiling not with your strength, but with his. 
So rest in Jesus' power. And finally, we really can make disciples if we rest in Jesus' presence. Verse 20, Jesus gives us his second promise. At the end of the Great Commission, he says, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Hear me clearly, church. This is an unconditional promise to the people of God. Jesus is not saying, I'll be with you if you obey. Jesus is not saying, I'll be with you to the degree that you obey. Jesus is saying, I will be with you always. Now obey. Listen to Hebrews 13 verse 5, where Jesus says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, even though Jesus is always with us, is always with his people. If you're a Christian, Jesus is always with you. You don't always feel like he's with you, do you? I remember when Jonah was a baby. He's our oldest, 13 years old now, but he was maybe six, eight months old. I was a youth pastor, and we were taking our, college, our, 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 our high school students on a college tour. Uh, we went from Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, we went to Louisville, Kentucky to see Boyce College. We went to Raleigh, North Carolina to see Southeastern College. We went up to Lynchburg to see Liberty. And all that long driving, I, don't, I mean, I don't remember how many hours of driving. We had Jonah with us in the front seat, first bench, not the very front seat. Don't judge me. Uh, first bench in this big 15-passenger van with a bunch of students and he just wanted to scream the entire time. He, he wanted to see his mom. He still wants to see his mom all the time. Loves his mom. Good boy. But that day, as we're driving for hours and hours and hours in the car, the only thing that Holly could do to help our son feel her presence was to reach back and hold his hand. And so far, I don't know how many hours I'm driving one college after another, and she's holding his hand. Why? So he can feel her presence. And I can't prove this to you, but, but let me just suggest that perhaps we would feel the presence of God more acutely if we would faithfully obey his word. Dear Christian, could it be that you just don't feel the presence of God because you are not busying yourself doing what he's called you to do. Don't mishear me. He is with you. Just like Holly was in that car. Her presence didn't change. Jonah's perception of her presence changed. And so too, as you faithfully obey this great commission, will you not feel the presence and power of God as he empowers you to make disciples, to help other people follow Jesus. When I preached this passage on July 24th, 2016, I concluded by telling you that we could make disciples successfully, not in our own strength, but by trusting in the power and presence of Jesus. Coastal Baptist Church, I have seen God do that here. 
I have seen many of you step out of your comfort zone, step way out of your comfort zone to help other people follow Jesus. I have seen men begin meeting regularly with other men for prayer, accountability, and Bible study. I have seen women pour their heart and soul into studying God's word, not so, that, not so that they merely might have more information, but so that they can teach someone else. Some of you deacons and elders this morning, you were pretty rough around the edges when I first met you. I would have laughed at some of you if you told me you would be in your position now. But what happened? God worked. God worked. Others helped you follow Jesus, and you grew, and you grew, and now you're helping others. I've seen those who struggle to read their Bibles consistently, now consistently pour into others. I have seen many saints be sent away from PBC, and it's always hard to see them go. But so many of them have told me over and over again, I am a better church member now than I was when I got here because of what God did through this church. I have seen all these things and more at Pocosin Baptist Church. So let's keep going. With God's help and for his glory, let's keep shepherding sinners from lost to leader. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this wonderful church. Thank you for the ways that you have used PBC. God, as I reflect back on that first sermon, I didn't know what you would do here, but you knew every bit of it. God, you're not done. There's still work for us to do. So we pray that we would cast all of these crowns before your feet and we would roll up our sleeves and keep going so that our lost neighbors might know Christ, so that the baby Christians in our midst might grow in Christ, and so that we might rejoice in eight years from now at all the ways you're continuing to use us to shepherd sinners from lost to leader. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me as we sing together? <laughs>